0: Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the fastest growing movie podcast out there where we talk all things film. What is up movie friends? Welcome back to the podcast. This is Anthony and this is James and say we're going to do something a little different instead of a movie. We're going to do a TV show, Game of Thrones, specifically House Stark. We waited a little bit longer to do this show because I don't think anyone was over the ending. I think there was still PTSD for a lot of people <laughs> I dealing, love dealing with the ending of the show. It's also, I think it might be the most requested episode for us to do, despite even more requests than all the movies we get for people who want episodes on stuff. And I think that's because this was such a beloved show. And it is eight seasons, so it's like, how do we approach doing an episode on that so, we decided to split it up by houses, which is a really good idea by you. Thank you. And so, we're going <laughs> to... Can, can you say that again? Can you say it was a really was, great it was, idea? It was a decent idea by you, Anthony. All right? <laughs> and so, we decided to split up houses. So, this episode will be House Stark. We'll do a House Lannister, House Targar- Targaryen. And I think we think that's the best way to go about it. Yeah. And we chose the Starks first because I would say that the, ultimately the story is led by the Starks it starts with the Starks and then ends with the Starks so ultimately I think they are the, the they're the leads of the story although yes Danny has a huge huge storyline and the Lannisters especially Tyrion have gigantic storylines but I think ultimately the story starts and ends with the Starks so I think they're the most important family and not just the Starks it starts and ends and is centered upon Jon Snow specifically you know fire and ice that's Jon Snow his houses because he's Targaryen and a Stark so the fire and ice the dragon and the Starks and the Wolves, so he's basically the focal point of the show g- that we don't really, you don't really know he's the, the lead for a while he kinda seems like one of those characters who you, you could see them killing off at some point because they axed Ned so, so soon so I think that a lot of people watching the show, they're always hoping don't kill Jon Snow, don't kill Jon Snow Yeah, that, cause that first season when you kill the face of the, of the franchise, Ned Stark um, it, ma- it makes everyone vulnerable and it, for the rest of the show, rest of the series Anyone can be killed at any time, so it keeps the audience on the edge of their feet because we never know what's going to happen. And like you said, Jon Snow, we didn't know he would be the lead. I, the first three seasons, you thought Rob was going to be the leader. Rob was going to lead Starks against the Lannisters and and rule the Seven Kingdoms, and and that was how the story was going to play out. Even when he becomes king, that's what you think. Yeah, exactly. Like he becomes king of the North, and he's he's messing up Um Stannis's army, and he's really making an impact. And then ultimately, he's killed off at the Red Wedding so unexpectedly. And it's not until I would say like maybe season four and five where John starts taking getting a heavy amount of screen time and his storyline starts taking over the, the plot of the show. Yeah. And those who don't pay attention closely, if you go back and watch the seasons like one, two and three over again, you start to see these little clues and hints at Jon Snow how he could be a main player and you see like these foreshadowed lines of dialogue or, or something like that that show that he's gonna be the end in, in charge and power or or a main character in general. Before we continue, we need your help. In order to support Raiders of the Lost podcast, become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost podcast. You get personalized messages, personalized videos, our podcast schedules, top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. You also get exclusive video content like Q&As, as well as you're automatically entered into monthly giveaways. Every dollar we get from Patreon goes right back into the show to make it as good as possible, and we appreciate every cent we get from y'all. If you watch on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and smash the like button. Yeah, but the show it starts off on such strong footing because of Ned, um, played by uh, what's his name, Sean Bean. Sean Bean. How did I for- <laughs> how did I forget his name? And-, and Sean Bean was the face of the show, and he was he was a representation of just a- an ultimate nobleman, a great leader, and uh, he instilled so many core values in his children, which they all eventually develop You know, Sansa is very mature at first in the first few seasons, but she develops those um, qualities as well. And for people, for his sons, like especially Rob and John, they have many of the same values that Ned has. And Arya has some of them, but she still has a little bit of a uh, uh, rebellious nature to her. Um, but the, ultimately, every one of his kids... Except for Bran, he's just like, what yeah, is going yeah. on with this kid? Bran's <laughs> a special case. But the, all the other kids... They end the show, with at, and then they end their storylines very much having the same qualities that Ned um, instilled in them. I, I mean, you could probably argue that John was the most similar to Ned in a way, and he really took on those attributes most well, whereas Rob is very similar to Ned, but he does have some major weaknesses which cause his downfall, like his arrogance and his overconfidence, and kind of thinking because he's winning some battles, and now he's king, he can do whatever he wants, and he can slight... Um, the the phrase and in, in that supposed the marriage contract which he was supposed to get into and so I think Rob is they set it up like he's gonna be the next Ned Stark he's gonna be a great king but he's his own downfall yeah he chose he Rob chose love over duty in a lot of ways because he refused that offer which would have united the phrase with the Starks and he chose his own path and chose his own wife because he, he fell in love with her and that was his downfall whereas John. Uh, even though he does fall in love a couple of times in the series, he never strays from the moral compass that he is has inherited, of always being bound by duty and being bound bound by serving his people. Yeah, that's actually a great point because he falls in love twice throughout the show. Um, he and he has to leave both of his his loves. He leaves Ingrid and he leaves. Ingrid. He kills Dan Ingrid and he kills Danny. Yeah. So he has to sacrifice love for his duty like yeah. you said yeah he literally kills the woman he loves so he's that he's very unlike rob in that way and very much like ned because ned he's he's such a strong leader and one of his values that he instilled in john is as a leader if you're going to punish someone you're going to do it yourself you're not going to let someone else uh carry out the execution which is why ned always if there's an execution he'll he's always the one who throws down the sword on on that person's head and and kills them personally. And what that does is is it instills a great amount of responsibility to being a leader because uh, if you give duties like that to other people, it lessens the impact of your choices and so John learns early on because it's in one of, it's in the opening opening um episode, the pilot. John sees this and they talk about this. And then when John eventually becomes commander of the Watch, he and he does the same act himself, where he carries out the execution of someone multiple times. And so what that does is it it adds the the weight and impact of your choices. And so John learn is learning throughout the entire series how important choices are and what the after, what the causes and effects of them are. Yeah, and probably the main difference between Rob. And John, besides uh, Rob following his love and his heart, is being true to your word and being loyal. And so by Rob basically throwing that contract away, he's not true to his word and he's not loyal to to the the alliance that could be potentially made. And his arrogance again and his hubris gets in the way and thinks that he can get away with anything he wants. And that's the biggest difference between him and John also. Yeah, and John, he, his path is so... He goes through such a major transformation. Every one of them does. And John, he starts out as an outcast. He he's a, he's a bastard. That's why his name is is his last name is Snow and not Stark because any bastard born in the North they take the name the last name Snow. And even in his own family, he's kind of the runt of the litter. Hence, um, when they find the direwolves in the opening, um, there are initially five direwolves and. John says, "Oh, then that is meant to be that we were supposed to find these direwolves because I'm not a real Stark, and if the, if I was, then there would be six direwolves. But then he finds the runt of the litter, that albino direwolf who he names Go- uh, Ghost, and so that further instills the idea that he is a Stark, and he also is the runt of the litter in a way. Yeah, he's bastard born, so he has nothing to inherit. There's really he's he's you know he's influenced by his uncle to follow the the path of the Night Watch." And you know John, even though he knows he's a bastard, and he accepts that, he's very respectful. He even calls Ned Stark Lord Stark a lot. He doesn't really refer to him as father, even though Ned says to him multiple like multiple times, he's like, "You're a Stark. You might not have my last name, but you have my blood." Even though not, he wasn't. He's not his son. We learn he's his nephew eventually. And like you we were talking about a minute ago, being a bastard it prepares him for this lonely path in life where. He's already dealt with being like in the corner watching everyone else enjoy their time or like watching the Stark children uh, having their inheritance and and being royal blood and and being ladies and and knights and potential knights and he doesn't get to participate in the the formal functions that the rest of the family get to participate in. So that's why when he kind of goes out on his own, he's already prepared for all that. Before we continue, we have some breaking news. And this PSA is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. The Manscaped engineering team has just confirmed that they've successfully created the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer. And I'm telling you, it's fantastic because we're some of the only people in the world that have it because they sent it to us early. Over 2 million men are currently using Manscaped products because their stuff is legit. Their deodorizers, their colognes, I wear their boxer briefs all the time. They're so comfortable. I recommend their performance packages. It has a bunch of different products consolidated into one deal. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping year-round for manscaped.com. Using our coupon code really helps the show. It keeps this sponsorship alive for us and helps keep the lights on. So thank you to everyone who's ordered from Manscaped. It's he reminds me a lot of of Maximus and Gladiator because in, in Gladiator, uh, in the opening, Marcus Aurelius asks Mas- Maximus to um, take his place and become the emperor of Rome, and uh, Maximus rejects it. And Marcus Aurelius tells him, this is why it has to be you. They say, he's like, that's that's why it must be you. <laughs> Commerce is not a moral man. <laughs> so that's that's what makes a great leader because they aren't, um, intoxicated by power, so John is. It is very much the same as Maximus, where he doesn't want power, and because of that quality, he he makes a perfect leader because he's he will never be corrupted by power because he doesn't want it, but it's given to him because of his actions and how good of a person he is and how uh, how much of a natural born leader he is, and so the desire, the lack of a desire for power, is what eventually. Grants him power and that's ironic because Targaryens are known for being lustful for power and wanting to keep as much power as possible but even though he is a Targaryen because he was raised by Ned Stark he doesn't have that quality of wanting power. He rejects power. He's he's forced into being king by the men of the north, and he doesn't want that honor, but he has to take it on because he's doing it for them. Yeah, we and you can contrast him with Danny's brother, who is extremely arrogant, extremely prideful. He's like he's a spoiled brat. Um, and even though he and Danny are living in exile across the ocean, he's he is so succumb with his um, belief that he is the he should be king. And he, all he wants is power, and that drives him to make horrible choices and uh, treat his sister cruelty and sell her into slavery. And it so that that corruption of power is something that Jon never learned because of how he was raised in Winterfell. And I think Winterfell, uh, growing growing up in Winterfell, obviously instills these kids with a lot of strength of character because I it's you can compare each house to like a city in the United States, like, in America. So, like, I would say that House Stark and Winterfell, it's like Boston, like, they're Bostonians where they live in the in the cold and the <laughs> long winters and, you know, it makes the people tough and rigid and rugged and, like, strong-willed and, you know, like, hard workers, whereas the Lannisters are, like, Los Angelinos and... <laughs> You know the weather's beautiful and the king's landing and there's a lot of wealth there like silicon valley that's like where everything's happening and there's a lot of uh, knowledge and it's a very popular place to want to live and then uh the targaryens you could say it's it's new york because the the dragonstone island is it's an island and new york mostly is an island and that could be you could say it's the center of power in the entire seven kingdoms like how new york has basically all the power of, of the United States is centralized there whether it be like Wall Street or politics or whatever and and the Baratheons are from Maine you know they love to hunt their, their sigil is a, is a stag uh, they live on, on the water and, and they live in nature and the Tyrells come from Chicago there's lots of farmland and very progressive politically and socially and then House Greyjoy is like New Orleans because it's a port city and uh, they live off the water and uh, they're a little, a little more reckless than other houses and and i think that's why part of the reason why the starks are so strong in character because they live in a horrible horribly harsh environment winterfell it's not just cold it's extremely cold and in the winter it's even worse you should all be watching YouTube right now to see how proud Anthony is on his, because of coming up with that list. And he—he's. I, got told, the, you a, a I told you a giant smile on his face. He's like, "Yeah, I know. I came up with that myself because I, I know I'm right." <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a great point to bring up that you know their motto, "Winter is coming," that obviously signifies that the long summer is coming to an end, and yes, the winter is coming, which means you know the White Walkers are coming. The long winter is coming, which is supposedly going to be longer than the long summer, but it also means that. It's it's like the model to prepare them that life is gonna throw hardships at you, and the Starks, all the characters go through immense struggle, and their fates are usually end with death in a horrible early way. Or and you can also say that the direwolves, their fates all coincide with the, with the Stark children. Yeah, so, there's a connection. Yeah, so there's a connection between every wolf and the child. And John, his character, his plot is so vital because he. His story explores the north, and it, he explores um, beyond the wall and the wildlings and, and the White Walkers. And we learn of the White Ar- Walker army because of his actions and, and what what he goes through in in the story. And ultimately, he becomes probably the most important character in the entire story because uh, he's the one who who gets everyone to get on board with um, combining forces and fighting the the White Walkers, the White the Dead Army, the Army of the Dead, and and trying to stop the Night King. Yeah, so of all the houses and all the families in Westeros, the Starks are kind of the only ones that are in charge of something that's protecting all of them, the wall. And so they're the original people that, like, the original Stark is the one who built that wall. It's Bran the Builder, um, who actually Bran's named after. And he was—he built this wall with magic and giants to, to keep those White Walkers and the dead army out and so the starks have kind of been in charge of that situation for the entire existence of their rule of the north which they came into after Aegon Targaryen started destroying everything and conquering the world basically and the original stark uh, succumbed to the attack and knelt and he was the king who knelt and as as a reward Targaryen gave the starks control of the north yeah, so they don't there there hasn't been a king in the north for for centuries. And what's really cool about beyond the wall is that before the wall was built, we learned because of the children um what do they call the children of the something, children of the forest. The 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 free people, the wildlings, they are descended from the first men who and the starks are also descended from them. So they're the, they're the same races of people isn't there a connection where they the starks wouldn't have survived without the wildlings i believe well well the starks became the starks after because because of the different regions they were living in and the wildlings just happened to be living on the northern area where the wall was built and the centuries after the wall being built that division caused a great amount of prejudice between uh the starks and the, the people who live in the north towards the wildlings and that's why they view them as in such a negative attitude whereas john he reunite he 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 basically brings together these two peoples that have been separated by the wall and he understands that they all come from the same race and that's and that they they really are the same people ultimately so that's one of the major uh, points of his plot yeah that's one of his strengths where he obviously he becomes a king and he's a stark and he understands that there's politics and battles and and war and there's this competition for the throne but once but he always has this this intention or this this focus on the greatest obstacle of all whether it be the white walkers and the winter coming uh, and once they defeat that the greatest obstacle is Dan- Danny at the end and so he always has his eye on what the biggest threat to Westeros in general is because Yes, we're divided. The Westeros is divided by kingdoms, but they're all the same because they're all breathing. They're yeah. all they're all the same person. Yeah, they're the same people. And and John always is willing to swallow the bitter pill and pay fealty to leaders over and over again, which shows that which shows his his lack of desire for power. Like first he becomes loyal to the Night's Watch, and then he bends the knee to to Mance um, the leader of the wildlings and then he bends the knee to Stannis Baratheon in loyalty and then when he becomes the leader of the night watch He uses his power, but not for any kind of gain of any way He just he wants to be a good leader and then he reluctantly is given the, the title of the king in the north because He accepts that because he ultimately knows that He is the only person that can unite all of the families together and so he reluctantly accepts it, even though he didn't want it. He even says it in his speech, like, I never asked for this. I never asked for it. <laughs> you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> and so, and then he finally pays fealty and bends the knee to Daenerys when she asks him to. But but then there's the the one person he does deny is Cersei. And the reason why John Jon's biggest weakness is his political awareness and his political leanings, because... He's he's a brilliant warrior strategist, um, a fantastic leader, but he's a horrible politician, because in the in the final season, Cersei wants him to bend the knee to her. And John could lie to her and say, "Yeah, I'll bend the knee to you, and I'll call you my queen," and then later on take over King's Landing and take her out. But because of John's honor, and his literally, he can't lie. His his inability to to deceive anyone or he doesn't he can't manipulate anyone and that causes a major problem in the last season and even Tyrion tells him he yells he berates him he's like can't you j- lie just once yeah, just, like, it would be beneficial if you could lie right here yeah, just just <laughs> once just pretend to lie and so John, he is such a, a a straight and narrow leader and he can do no wrong and ultimately that can be a hubris of his being too good Before we continue with that, i got to tell you all about MoviePosters.com. The number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our special promo code, Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. It is the number one place to get your posters online. Don't go to Amazon. I know it's free shipping, but the quality is not even close to MoviePosters.com. If you're looking at our set, it is decked out with these posters. We actually got sent some new ones this week. We got Kill Bill behind James. I got Jaws, Blade Runner, Alien. Alien. They just send us posters. We, we send them posters that we like, and they just mail them right to us. And it's a great partnership with them. If you need posters, if you're a fan of TV shows, if you're a fan of movies, there's no better way to express that love than with a movie poster. Head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our coupon code Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today at MoviePosters.com. Yeah, he kind of fits that stereotype of he's like stupidly heroic. He's just like yeah. too good of a person, too good of a hero. Yeah. And he also I think that he bends the knee when he has to because he believes that even though he doesn't want to be king, he doesn't want power, he's still always looking out for the best way to to do good with his life and he, he's there and he understands because of his training and his attributes and who he is and the the power that he does have if he doesn't want it. It's his obligation to protect those who can't protect himself, essentially. I would say that he always bends the knee because he believes that he isn't special. He grew up in a, a bastard. He was always told he was an outcast. He was always told he wasn't a Stark. And so he has this complex where he doesn't he never believes that he should be in charge of anyone he never believes that he should be a leader but he ironically is a natural born leader and so and there's a great scene in the first season um, when like you said John isn't um, allowed to be be a part of the Stark formalities like hosting the Lannisters at that dinner I mean he could be at the party but he's not he can't sit at the table with them so because of this he likes he hangs outside and sulking and he has that conversation with Tyrion And Tyrion encourages him to embrace that outcast within him and to wear that bastard name proudly because it separates him from other people. And Tyrion knows better than anyone what it's like being an outcast. And it used to bother him when he was younger, but now that Tyrion is an adult, he embraces what makes him different. Uh, Ultimately, yeah, he lives in a privileged situation where money is no problem and his father is the most powerful person in, in the Seven Kingdoms, but... He understands that if you if you allow your outcast nature or the or the way people view you to affect you negatively, you'll never prevail. And so embracing ironically, embracing the outcast within him is what gives John the ability to bend the knee because he never believes he should be a leader. That's a great point. Yeah. And a lot of his qualities, you can say, are the perfect combination of being a Targaryen by blood and Stark by blood, but then being raised by the Stark families because, you know, he's got both the dragon and the wolf in him and... And they say that half Targaryens go mad, and when a Targaryen is born, the gods flip a coin, so either he or Danny has to go mad and go insane. And fortunately for us, and for for him, it's it's not it's not John. Yeah, and also fortunately for him, he didn't take on any Targaryen characteristics physically. Yeah. you know, he he looks like a Stark. Not the pl- platinum yeah. hair. Yeah, if he had the platinum blonde hair, it would have been a little bit harder to uh, convince people that he was Ned Stark's son. And ultimately, that's. Uh, what's very what was so mysterious about his characters we want for so many seasons we wanted to know who his parents were because we felt like Ned wasn't being totally honest. We didn't know that Ned was lying the whole time and that he wasn't even John's father and then when I, it's it's revealed at the end of season six, I believe, or, or the opening of season seven that John is uh, part Targaryen. Samwell tells him, yes, right? Yeah, Sam, Sam um, was doing the research, and then he told Bran, and then Bran told John again because John is so honorable. When he when he learns that he is a Targaryen and he is the rightful heir to the throne, he rejects it like he always has done, and then he even asks his family. He asks Sansa, uh, Bran, and Arya not to tell anyone that he's part Targaryen, but of course. You know, Sansa, being Sansa, tells so- uh, someone immediately. <laughs> <laughs> she told Tyrion, like right away. It's like telling a, like a grandmother, don't tell everyone I'm pregnant. <laughs> Part Dragon is definitely essential for him to being that equal to Danny towards the end of the series. Yeah. And it's his qualities and his morality and basically being a moral compass that attracts Danny to him like the fact that he took the the knife to the heart and she sees his wounds and that's like wow this guy is incredible yeah yeah. he does that for his people but also that's another example of his he's not he's a great leader but also he's not a great politician yeah he didn't know that he didn't have the sense that his own men would turn on him and try to kill him you know what i mean because he he knew that they weren't happy with the, the decision he was making by allowing the wildlings to come across the wall but he never thought in a million years that they would turn on him and and assassinate him. Yeah, and you could probably, yes, he's a bastard, so he wasn't familiar with the formal and political leanings of that go on between the houses and everything but also the Starks in general in Winterfell since they're they have such a harsh climate and they're kind of closed off and just always have to stay in their castle they don't have like the freedom to pursue politics and they don't they don't they don't get out, get out as much as as like the the Lannisters in the south because and so you could say that there's less politics in Winterfell versus King's Landing yeah it's a very lonesome area the, the, no, the north and Whereas King's Landing is booming with people. It's the heart of, of the Seven Kingdoms. And so people like Tyrion and, and Jamie and Tywin and, and Cersei uh, are inundated with politicians and, and bureaucrats and, and wealthy um, businessmen and women. And, and so that, that's why Tyrion be, is such a brilliant political strategist and such a brilliant person with um, his social interactions with other people and, and his scheming. And his manipulation because he grew up in that environment. Yeah, that's how he makes it so far, and he even becomes the the hand of the queen for Danny. So Tyrion's a great character. I can't wait to talk about him in the last episode. But let's take a little break and have our intermission from this House of Stark episode. And our intermission is brought to you by our friends at Manscape.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for twenty percent off and free shipping. Let's do this one, man. All right. So intermission. Fun games. We'll start with our movie quote competition. You ready? I'll, I'll say I'll say movie quote and Anthony will guess it and vice versa. Let's see. Carpe diem, boys. Seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. Silver lines playbook? No. Oh no. I'll say it again. Guess this movie. Carpe diem, boys. Seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. Let me know if you want a hint. I'll take a hint. Oh, captain, my captain. Oh, um, what's it called? Um, with Robin Williams. Oh, what's it called? You got this. You got this. <laughs> Ethan Hawke's in it. Oh, man. I can't remember Dead the name. Dead Society. Dead Poets Society. Oh, man. Oh, jeez. All right, here's mine. You see, in the world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. You dig. Want me to say it again? Yeah, say it again. You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend: those those with loaded guns and those who dig. You dig. Oh my God! I know that. I know as soon as you tell me, I'm gonna punch myself. (sighs) What is this? Give me a hint. It's a western. Yeah, I figured. Um. Good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's Blondie Creed's yeah, character. Yeah. The end. Last, the yeah. last. Yeah. Before the shootout. Yeah. <laughs> After the shootout. Or yeah. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And it's right behind yeah, you too. Yeah. I forgot the poster <laughs> right there. I'm like, oh, I was like, you were thinking of like, wait, if he just looks at me, he'll well, be able to see technically You it. have the French version, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Movie release year. Guess what year this film was released. School of Rock. 2004. 2003. Oh! One <laughs> off. Oh, One man. off. Man. You almost got it. <sighs> I love that movie. All right. The Big Lebowski. 98. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, got it. 1998. Good job. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> I, was, I was like more excited than you were. <laughs> yeah, you threw your arms up. <laughs> Not that dumb. you no, I just Be like... Be like, yay, Jim's got it. <laughs> Jim got it. Way to go, Jim. You <laughs> <Jim laughs> did it. <laughs> Good job, James. Guys, guys, did you see that? He got one right. <laughs> That's my brother. <laughs> 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 All right, pop quiz question. All right. Which wildly popular horror movie was filmed in just seven days? Wildly popular horror movie filmed in seven days. Paranormal Activity. Yeah. Yes. Good job. That was almost a trick question because Blair Witch is like eight days, I think. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so oh, it was, wow. It was also super She eight days? Damn, yeah. Seven days. But yeah, they wow. filmed the entire first Paranormal Activity in seven days. Looked like it. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like they did it in like an afternoon, bro. <laughs> well, actually, a couple of night shoots. I believe that's the most successful movie for return on investment yeah, of all, all time. Yeah, it's up there. It's up it was, there. It cost like $10,000 to make and it made like $400 million. Yeah, million. Yeah, I think they got an increased budget after like the first- cut of it too yeah maybe to like just pumped it up to, to do like 000. visual effects yeah. and stuff some minimal stuff yeah all right your turn no i just asked it. <laughs> it's your turn no i don't know why i said that <laughs> all right my turn <clears throat> no it's my turn <laughs> <laughs> what oscar-winning actor died during the production of the final hunger games movie was he in the movie in the movie oh man Oscar actor. They had to do a little CGI on a couple of shots to replace the actor for a couple of shots. Donald Sutherland's not dead, is he? He's still kicking, man. Yeah, yeah. It's not him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's Phil Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Oh, man. yeah. Missed that guy. That's right. He played Hamich. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Is he even in the first one? He's in Catching Fire was his first one, so he wasn't in the first one, but he was in the the second, third, and fourth. Oh, man, I forgot he was in those movies. Yeah, me too, until I was like, wait, I was on his bio, and I was like, oh, yeah, he was in Hunger Games. Making that cheddar. Yeah, he died. um, He still had a week left of photography Mm -hmm. on the film when he passed away. Man, what an actor. Only 46 years old, I believe. Wow. Yeah, so young. So young. All right, let's do a biggest hater of the week, and this one happened today because we made a a great little clip on TikTok that we posted of Mad Max and Fury Road, and in the clip, Anthony discusses how the entire film is shot center frame, where the subject of every shot, whether it be an explosion or someone giving dialogue or a fight scene, the center of every action is the composition is center frame, which obviously a lot of filmmakers do this throughout their their movies. You know, West Not Anderson, a lot, yeah. just a, a handful. Not like the entire film, but like yeah, you'll think, see it. I think in, Wes Anderson. Yeah, Wes yeah. Anderson does it a lot, but I mean Kubrick. a lot of a lot of directors will put some shots of this in their movies. So yeah. it's not uncommon, but Mad Max is a very rare exception where every single shot is center frame composition. And so a bunch of haters in the comments said All sorts of stuff. Like, oh, this is how movies are shot. 99% of all movies are made like this. Yeah, so one was specifically. 99% of all movies are shot like this, and we tore them apart because... Most movies, most cinematographers and filmmakers, they film their characters and, and actors with lead room or nose room. And that's when there's a little bit of space and empty empty space in front of the direction that they're speaking or their action to give the audience a per- perspective of the scene and the situation. Yeah, so it helps, you, it helps the audience understand that two characters maybe are looking at each other even though they're in separate shots. And when you edit them together... It, it, yes, it's helpful having the character looking in the direction, but also having a little more more space on that character's side, empty space in the direction of the character they're speaking to or interacting with. That allows the audience to really understand the blocking of the scene. Yes. Yeah, so nose room, lead room. Next time you're watching a film, TV show, you'll notice this every almost every time. There's a shot of someone speaking to somebody else. There's yeah. a ton of space. That happens 99 of the time. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah that's the 99 yeah. of the time. So obviously, this guy never studied film. Never never studied f- cinematography. They teach you this in journalism 101 I'm pretty sure so I mean come on guy Jeez. <laughs> yeah you tore him up I was nice too That yeah, was you, really nice you were very professional yeah but I said I was gonna destroy him at the beginning of the clip <laughs> I will end you <laughs> anyways if you don't know what the hell you're talking about don't act like you know what you're talking about <laughs> it happens a lot in the comments <laughs> it happens quite a lot Let's get back into the episode, and as we've been discussing, Jon Snow is a bastard, so he doesn't participate in the formal activities. However, he does have a strong bond with Rob. They are about the same age, so they came up together, and um, he's a rival to Theon Greyjoy, who's basically like uh, originates as a hostage by the Starks that take who they, they take from the Ironsides, and then uh, it's voluntarily. Yeah, it's a way of keeping peace between the families. Yeah. yeah, and then Sansa is always cold to him, like his like their her mother. Uh, Catelyn is, but then we have Arya, who is incredibly close to John, and and John and her have this great relationship and bond, and John gets Arya his her first sword, the needle, needle and they just have this beautiful relationship, and it's so great to see how both of them transform as characters from uh when Arya is a young girl, and then towards the end of the film when they reunite. I mean, the end of the series. Yeah, and the thing with Arya is she's supposed to be. Something and she doesn't want to be that. She's supposed to be ladylike. She's supposed to end up being the lady of of a, of a, of a land, or in, um, and be a wife. And that's what Ned tells her. Yeah, that's what her that's what her family is intending for her to be. Um, that's what Catelyn was. You know, she was married to Ned Stark, and things like this happen politically for the families around the entire North to to keep the peace. And it's a normal thing, and it's what's expected of her. But but Arya is. Independent and she's so rebellious and she doesn't want any of that. She wants to be like her brothers, and she thinks it's unfair that she has to learn how to sew. Even though Sansa loves it, Arya can't stand it, and she wants to learn how to fight. And you know Ned, he understands what she's going through, and that's why like he gets he gets her those lessons with Sirio and allows her to learn how to fight. But what's great about Arya's character is just like Jon, she has a major transformation. But ultimately, her transformation. Is so much like John because she ends up becoming the ultimate version of herself and like who she was born to be. She she ends up becoming a lethal warrior, an assassin, um, an unbelievable fighter, and in a lot of ways a leader too. And she always had that within her and her experience throughout the entire series leads her on this path to achieve everything, all the potential she had within her. Yeah, and again, she connects just... Like with her Direwolf, who's Nymeria. And she names her Nymeria because that's after a warrior princess. And like we talked about, Nymeria attacks Joffrey in an attempt to protect her. When Joffrey is holding the sword to Arya's neck. And then Arya is forced to scare her and send Nymeria away into exile. Or else Joffrey will execute her. And um, Ar- Arya also puts herself into exile, just like Nymeria. Both are lost, they're both uncertain of their paths. And even when their paths cross again, when Arya's older and comes back after her training, and she, she runs into into Nymeria and, and they recognize each other, and she, she tells Nymeria to come with her. And Nymeria decides not to and, and turns and walks away to her wolf pack and, and leaves Arya because she's just like Arya where the same situation happened where Ned was telling Arya one day you'll be a lady and you'll your sons will be knights and you'll you'll be a lady of Winterfell and she's like no that's not me. Same thing with Nymeria she says that's not you. And she also, she constantly is breaking tradition and, and is the opposite of expectations towards so many people like Gendry. Uh, even though Gendry spends so much time with her, he still under- un- doesn't understand who she is because he proposes to her at the end of the series and asks her to be his wife, his lady, because he's, he's a lord now. And she she's, has to explain to him, like, that's not me. That's not who I am. I never was and I never will be a lady. Stage five clinger, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Gendry. <laughs> man, well, she's the, only, she's the only person he's ever been with. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's devoted to her. You, no, know, I'm kidding. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, take, you take Game of Thrones way too seriously. Well, actually, Gendry had never You don't know what there. he was going through. <laughs> you need to be a little more empathetic towards Gendry, Jim. <laughs> but ultimately, every character, every Stark has a has a part to play, and eventually, Arya is a tool for this entire story, and her purpose we'll find out is to kill the Night King, and her entire path. Prepares her for that moment everything she goes through prepares her for the for the battle of Winterfell to not only survive that battle But then to stab the Night King in the chest and to end the the long the long winter And so her entire storyline prepares her for this one moment in the entire series Yeah, and she kind of gets this motto from serial Pharrell her first trainer about how he asks her if if she prays to the God She says yes the old and noon he says there's only one God and that's death and there's only one thing we say to death, not today. And I love that that line is kind of thrown throughout her entire journey and path where her god is death and she deals in death and she ruthlessly carries out so many assassinations and, and, and brutal murders. like so me. many throats. Dude, she stabs the guy's <laughs> eyes out. It's like every time she's about to kill somebody, it's like oh my god, I can't watch this. And it's such an, uh, uh it, it inverts expectations about like what a little girl is. You know what I mean? She's a, a ruthless assassin by season 7 and 8 and and i i adore her storyline it's one of the the best in the entire show just the entire path of traveling on her alone on her own and hanging out with the hound for a while he he takes her hostage and um they the thing with the hound is like they end up bonding and they find that they actually are a lot alike and they have a lot of qualities and they have they develop a kinship reluctantly but there's always it's a very fun back and forth between them they're it's like part it's like Funny half the time, and then she's trying to kill him or something half the time, and yeah. then he'll rescue her. Leaves her, f- leaves him for dead. Yeah, exactly. So I love the relationship between her and the Hound, and then ultimately, the the storyline in her interactions with Jock and uh, the leader of the Faceless Men is so interesting. Yeah, just to stay on the Hound for a second with her because it's, it's a great part of her journey because she learns so much from the Hound. Actually, even though they're fighting, even though. Uh, she leaves him for dead, even though he's begging her to kill her, kill him. Um, she, he learns, she learns, or the Hound teaches her how the world really works in Westeros. You know, honor is kind of dead in a lot of ways, and there are really no more rules for some yeah, people. Yeah, he says like that's why your dad's dead. Yeah, and it's like how many Starks do they have to behead for you to get that? And even I love that scene where Brienne's there, trying to take Arya with her, and she's like, "I'll bring you to safety. Come with me." And the Hound's like. Where's that? Her father's dead. Her bro- her mother's dead. Her brother's dead. Winterfell is rubble. So, the Hound kinda is the only person in Westeros who kinda understands how it all works, in a way. It's in addition to, like, Tyrion and everything. Yeah. And, all- and even though the Hound, he takes Arya, and his plan is to go to the Eyrie and sell her to her aunt for a reward, Deep down, he ends up caring for her and want, and he ends up becoming her protector in, in many occasions. And he saves her life at the end when she wants to go up those stairs to get revenge. And she's, and he's like, "Look at me. Is this what you want to become? If you follow me, you're, you're gonna die here. This is what will happen to you." And he saves her life by forcing her to stay down, convincing her not to continue the path up the, up the stairs. And her path, just like, I think all of the Starks. They go through this um, problem of accepting who they are and what they should do. And Arya, in her case, when she joins the Faceless Men and she begins training with Jaqen, um, the whole point of the Faceless Men, their like number one rule is to uh, absolve yourself of identity. Be nobody. Be nobody. And that's the hardest lesson for Arya to to learn she struggles with that constantly ultimately when she does finally accept it and she does become no one she rejects it and she rejects the faceless men the faceless assassins and um, she abandons it because she realizes that she is a Stark and she should never abandon her family and she should live and die by her family and that's why she's in ca- she's unable to carry out that assassination that Jockin orders of killing that actress. Um, And that's why she leaves, because during that first mission she's given, she realizes that she can't just kill an innocent person. When she she learns why the faceless men were hired to kill the woman, she realizes it it is because of a rival of that actress who wanted her dead for her own glory. And there was no just cause to it. And so ultimately, she was intoxicated by... The power to kill, because she's always possessed this mental list of people she wants to kill, who who kill her family and cause destruction in, in her life, and so she's become she, throughout the the first half of the series, she's obsessed with killing, and wants to learn how to kill these people, and then ultimately she learns that um, you need to, it's a you have you can kill, but you have to kill wisely. And you can't kill unjustly. There always needs to be cause for it. Yeah, and it, it kind of speaks to her, her youth at the time when she stumbles upon Jockin and they first meet. And sh- her naivety when he tells her, say three names and the man will do the rest. You know, that's you shouldn't take that lightly that you can get three people killed just by saying their name. And I think it takes her that whole entire journey of, of training with the faceless men, which is so insane how she, yeah. she loses her sight and she has to fight blind and she has to do everything blind until... She accepts that she is no one, and when you become no one, you can become anyone, and she's told that she's a girl who has no name. She has no name, and then, like you said, she rejects that because then she says, I'm Arya Stark of Winterfell. Yeah, yeah, it's her embracing who she is, and I love when she comes back to Winterfell because she left a little girl, and she returned a woman and a deadly assassin. She's like Beatrix Kiddo and Kill Bill, like... She is the most one of the most lethal people in the entire uh king in the entire in all of Westeros. And she even uh gets the best of Brienne, who is one of the fiercest fighters in Westeros as well. I mean, Brienne defeated the hound. You know what I mean? And, and then she has that sparring match with Arya and Arya gets the best of her multiple times. Yeah, and then that great scene with Sansa when she's talking about how we where, where Sansa's basically kind of threatening her in a way that she should be on her knees thanking her and that she, she that because now she's in charge of the North basically, yeah. and Arya's like threatening her, and she has the knife and walking closer to her, and she's like, "I can be anybody. I can even be you. What would it be like to to wear all those pretty dresses and everything?" And it shows how intimidating she is, even with her own blood. But then ultimately, um, Sansa learns that Arya is a vital tool to the North, which is how um, she uses Arya to um, surprise Littlefinger and. and- they assassinate Peter Baelish after learning that the knife from the first season, from that first episode, belonged to Peter. Oh, man, um, when she slits yeah. his throat yeah. in front of everybody. Yeah, because because they set the scene up thinking that um, Arya is going to be punished. Yeah, and is yeah, just and like he's yeah. like smirking like he always does, and then she just comes up behind him with the dragon glass knife and is like, "Up, see you later." It's such a great scene. Oh man, it's brutal. And I, I think Arya, um, she does. She has all the Stark values and but she she has to learn that she's a tool for death, but she has to learn that it needs to be used for a purpose. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite scenes of Aryan throughout the whole show is when she gets revenge of the Red Wedding by killing the house of Frey, basically, using her faceless techniques and sneaking into that that dinner scene and and then ending up killing Frey himself and the red wedding is is one of the most tragic parts of the show, but it's great to see that it was somehow avenged a little bit. Yeah, that's a and that opened season seven. That, yeah. I think that was the first scene in that season. So you're like, oh my god, when this she is takes awesome. the face off. You're yeah. like, oh shit, it's Arya. Oh my god, <laughs> and she becomes the winter, the hero of Winterfell. You know, like you said, she kills the Ice King. And what do you? I know, were you happy with the the Battle of Winterfell? Because I, I know a lot of people weren't satisfied with it. Um, I, I love that episode. I mean, I think the battle's great, but I know I've always made fun of the part where they spend seven seasons talking about winter coming and it's here for like a, an episode and then it's over. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think what a lot of people was want was wanting more. More of the Night King versus these kingdoms and everything, but it kind of just makes sense where it would just be a battle for winner, winner takes all for yeah. for the entirety of Westeros in the North. I would say. Yeah, I just I don't think I didn't see the problem because I mean yeah that season was rushed, but I mean I think that if you understand what goes into the production of this show, it's a beast, and there's only so much they can do and the budget was skyrocketing because so much special effects was required for these moments, like these epic, every episode of season eight is epic. And, you know, before that, that's that battle took months. Yeah, that's months. A, that's a whole movie that just that one battle. And so I think that what, what HBO did was like, we have to consolidate. We can't do that many episodes. We have to cut it down to, to was it was six episodes. And I mean, ultimately, yeah, it was rushed, but I think that it they, they was the only way it could have been done. Otherwise, I don't think HBO could have afforded to shoot it. And I know a lot of people, I, I love how the reactions people had to the last uh, season of Game of Thrones and how upset everyone was from it. I liked it. I thought it was cool. I, I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, it's not my story, but I actually, um, screenshotted a few review user reviews on IMDb. I just wanted to list them off real quick. Go for to it see, for so, the for the entirety, the review of the end of the show for the for the ending of Game of Thrones, and I, this just cracks me up. All right, so these are user reviews on IMDb. These are all one star ratings. Okay, applause for cast and crew. Fantastic job to them. Such a shame their incredible effort is literally annihilated by the absolute disgrace of mediocrity they call writing. <laughs> 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 this. This is what this episode and season is. This is the the Winterfell, Battle of Winterfell. A joke. Disgusting, offensive, pathetic joke. D&D, the producers should burn in hell for doing this to the greatest show ever. Oh my god. It took 11 (laughs) weeks to make that battle. Oh my god. Have some respect. Jeez, what do you want them to do? 11 weeks. Finally, it's over. (laughs) I regret ever watching this show. I thought it was a cool battle. Yeah, I thought it was insane. Uh yeah, those those are the, the worst ones. Yeah, just crack me up. The one star reviews of Game of Thrones are hysterical. And then Arya, after she becomes the hero, one of her the next biggest moment for her is escaping King's Landing. You know, after the hound tells her to oh go my God, away. Yeah. And she's escaping King's Landing after while while Danny is destroying it with dragon fire. And it's a really emotional scene for her because she's, you know. Tiny and she's small and she's trying to escape this all this fire and this rubble. And she's just so little. She's a little little girl. Not <laughs> Sounds terrible. <laughs> she's like seventeen. She's, yeah, she's a kid, but she but she's small. She's yeah. for what's going on around her, the explosions and the rubble and the destruction and the death. You don't think she's going to make it out alive, and it's it's really hard to watch. All the characters escaped that scene, let alone her. Yeah, I, when that we watched the episode together, when it was over, we were both like, "Holy crap!" Like it, we, yeah. we were like, "Whoa!" And I think when John sees Arya having escaped and she's almost dead, that's yeah. one of the things that kind of makes him want to go after Danny now. After seeing all this, that, and then hearing Dan- Daenerys' speech, um, in front of her army, saying that she's going to go throughout Westeros and and kill anyone who's against her, and so that John realizes that. She's going to continue this path of destruction, and she needs to be stopped because um, more millions of innocents are going to be killed in the process. And there's that great line of that great great scene of dialogue between Arya and John, where she's like, "You're always going to be an enemy to her," and she's like, "I know a killer when I see one," and she's a killer. And that's when John he really has to question his loyalty to not just the woman he loves, but the the queen he paid fealty to and knelt the knee to. And I know a lot of people were shocked when he killed Daenerys. But you have to understand that this is what he has always done. He's always made the hard choice. He's always done what he thinks is best. And it's never been easy. And he had to do what he had to do. Yeah, he's he's bound by duty. And he's bound to protect people who can't protect themselves. And, and... he was the only one who could have done it. Yeah. No one else could have gotten close to her. Yeah, so he was, you know, what the Lord of Light calls the prince that... Sh- should have been or the prince yeah. that was promised yeah i think that's Promise. what they call yeah. him and so he's essential and kind of a prophecy in a way to the ice and fire and technically that was supposed to be his moment to rise to the throne but ultimately because he killed her um the entire army of unsullied want his blood and he's forced into exile to go to the north to live with the free people uh beyond the wall so ultimately he did ascend to power he could have Gotten power, but ultimately it's because of the army of Unsullied, which is why he was never able to become the the the, the king of Westeros. And Arya's storyline ends where she gets on that ship and she's you know going across the sea. I love it. Maybe we'll have a spinoff with her. Who knows? I would tune in in a second to an Arya yeah, TV show. It'd be really cool. She would like Adventures of Arya. Yeah. But let's go back and talk a little bit about Rob Stark. Rob and his his direwolf again. They're tied fatefully as well. You know, Grey Wind are always is always with Rob. They're brothers, they fight and battle together, Re- Rob's nickname is the Young Wolf, and they're both killed and decapitated at the Red Wedding. And Rob, as we were talking about, once he gets power and he becomes king, he takes on all those traits that Ned had, which we did expect expected him to do, but then his arrogance, and I wouldn't say he, he was blind with power. Maybe a little bit, but I think he was a little blind with what he could do politically because he thought he could get away with anything. Yeah, because at this part in the series, a, a lot of people are claiming the throne. You have Stannis Baratheon claiming the throne for himself because his brother Robert died, so he thinks that he should be the one who should be on the Iron Throne. And then Renly too. Yeah, and then Renly. And then um you have Rob who decides that he should be taking the throne too, so he becomes enemies with Stannis. And then you have obviously Joffrey um, has the throne. And so there are a lot of people battling for the throne, and ultimately, uh, Rob. The thing with Rob is he, in a lot of ways, is better than John. And John even admits it. He says he was always jealous of Rob because he was a better fighter than him. He was stronger. He was more confident, and he was uh, seemed like a better leader. and And he he was Ned's favorite in a lot of ways. Like Ned gave him a lot more attention than he gave to John, and. I think one of the reason for that was because Ned was preparing John for the Night's Watch because he knew that he was going to have a tough life. So I think that Ned kept a little bit of a distance between him and John to prevent him from needing um, relationships. Whereas Rob, um, he's driven by his emotions a lot. Whereas Jo- um, John doesn't get driven by his emotions. Yeah, and Rob really proves himself as a leader and king when, you know, he, he ambushes and basically annihilates Jamie's army and takes Jamie ca- captive and he stops the Lannisters when they were going after River Run. But again, he was supposed to enter into that marriage contract with one of the Frey's daughters. I think it was Jane. He was the first King of the North since the days of the Conquest. But then his ambition and I think those victories lead to his downfall where he meets Talisa when he's being treated for a wound after a battle. By marrying her immediately, that obviously infuriates Walder Frey. And that's what leads to the Red Wedding. Walder Frey famous for being in Harry Potter. August Filch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Rob even... He he becomes such a successful warrior, and he's so adept in battle that rumors are spreading across Westeros of him having like magical powers and having a deep connection with his dire wolf And uh, what was that scene where Arya's talking yeah. to Um Lannister? Yeah, yeah. And he, she she's like Tywin. Tywin. They say that uh he can't die, and he, he rides his wolf into battle. Yeah. And so he, he's there. He's spreading fear across Westeros as the king in the north. But ultimately, it only lasts for so long, and Rob shows Rob's death illustrates how, how depth you, how, how crucial it is to make the right choices. And even if you don't like them, which is what John always does, he always makes the right choice rather than the choice he wants. I mean, he leaves like leaving Egret, he didn't want to have, he didn't want to do that, but he had to. You know, he's always making choices that he doesn't want to make, whereas Rob. He's like, I'm going to make the choices I want to make. And that ultimately is, you could say, is the main difference between the two brothers. Yeah, and John's parting words to Ingrid are, I know you love me and you know I love you. And then she shoots him with an arrow. Yeah, he's like, I have to go. Yeah. Yeah. And the red wedding, I remember because you would read the books and like you were like, "Oh my god, just wait, something crazy is gonna happen, something crazy is gonna happen." I'm I was like, the, I was like that arrogant, snobby yeah, guy. Yeah, I've read the books. I've, I've, the- yeah, have you read the books? <laughs> I was like, they're not as good as the, the show is good, but it's not as good as the books. <laughs> and then when the red wedding episode happened, and I like threw pillows across the room, screaming. We, so we actually watched that episode with dad. Yeah, and I filmed, years ago. I filmed you two reacting to it. Oh, I think I remember that. Yeah, I just yeah. have my, I have my iPhone on my lap, and I wasn't even—I was pretending I wasn't filming, but I filmed you guys. And you guys were like, as like the, the Starks <laughs> were getting killed and slaughtered, you guys were just like squirming in your seats, like "Oh shit!" <laughs> Dad was like, "Oh man, oh oh, <laughs> this is serious." <laughs> Sunday night, <laughs> but it's—it's it's incredible. I mean, it's—it's it's disturbing, you know, the way it goes about where they stab to to t- Lisa's pregnant belly, and then they kill Rob and, and Catelyn, it, slit Catelyn's throat. Yeah, and this is the a massacre that was arranged by. By Walder Frey is payback to King Rob Stark for breaking that marriage pact between House Stark and House Frey. And this is what um, Arya gets revenge for. Hence the importance of what choices you make and the consequences that arise from your choices, which John is always smart to understand. The North always remembers. I never wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, Rob gets killed. It's too bad. But you know, again like you like we've been talking about you your his weaknesses were his downfall, his arrogance to do thinking he can do anything he wants. Yeah. And the next stark uh is going to be Sansa that we'll talk about and Sansa was a f- not a fan favorite for a while. Um I I remember the first few seasons people just didn't like her very much and ultimately, I mean, she was a victim for so long and I understand that's her path, but it, uh, oftentimes it was like she wasn't given too much to do for the first four or five seasons, and she was just kind of being passed around from from husband to husband, and she was constantly being uh, treated with cruelty and abuse, and it was very difficult years for her um, when she was in her late teens. Um, but ultimately, Sansa becomes the queen of the North, and it's her it's her the abuse, the trauma and abuse that she survived that. Instills so, so much strength in her, the strength to be able to say no to Daenerys at the end, and to say I'm not going to bend the knee, and we need to. I'm going to be the queen in the North, no matter what Daenerys says. She's subject to horrible acts and torments while in King's Landing, and it's those experiences, similar to all these other Starks who have to go through hardship, that turns her into the great strong character that she is by season seven, season eight. Yeah, I mean she when she's a kid, she wants to be she can't wait to be Joffrey's queen. Yeah. Like that's that sounds like the most amazing thing in the world to her. And she even like rejects her family in a few instances and and hates Arya because Arya doesn't isn't very ladylike. And she at first thinks that Joffrey is this amazing, charming, handsome prince and she can't wait to to live a life with him. But once Joffrey gains power, he reveals his true colors because he was always a spoiled brat, and yes, he had he did show moments of real cruelty, but he didn't have much power. Like, yeah, he ordered um, the wolf to be killed, but like he didn't have real power. But then when he becomes king, his power goes right to his head, and it, he he abuses his power on a daily basis. Yeah, it's probably because Batman gave him that gadget in Batman Begins. Shouldn't have done that, Bruce. That's too much. He messed him up from youth. (laughs) (laughs) The little kid in Batman Begins when when um, Batman is crawling up in the Narrows and the little kid's on the on the porch. He's like. Kids won't believe me. <laughs> he throws them like the binoculars. Yeah, that's little Joffrey. It probably even says Wayne on it, like Wayne Enterprise. It's like, he's yeah. <laughs> probably going to figure out before anyone yet that Bruce Wayne's Batman. Now, apparently the actor, he had a tough time in in public life because people like, hated him because of his performance as Joffrey. Is that why he quit acting? Yeah, that's one of the reasons. It's too bad. I thought he did a great job. Oh, he was great. He was maniacal. He was a, a fantastic villain. I think he's an underrated villain because, because he was a kid. But but there there are kings in history who were like this, like spoiled brats who were horrible and ruthless and abused their power immensely and he's a representation of that that has happened throughout history yeah we all know like 13 to 15 year olds of these teenagers that are just punks and spoiled brats like imagine that getting the entire power of a kingdom that's where like the the lineage of like the the lineage determining who's king and queen like why give the kingdom to a 12 year old it's crazy (laughs) it's nuts not just a 12 year old a pos 12 year old yeah he's he's a sociopath he's he's like a, a serial killer honestly yeah but sansa goes through so much and but she does develop relationships, like she she develops a friendship with Tyrion, um, even though they're forced to marry each other and they are husband and wife for for some time. And then ultimately, her her chance to escape is Joffrey's death, and it's one of the best scenes in the entire series, Joffrey's death, because it happens on his wedding day, and he just married Marjorie Tyrell, and it's it's very happy and it's a brilliant moment. Um, how how he was killed because. It, it seems as though Tyrion is the one who did it because uh, what happens was is Joffrey orders Tyrion to bring him um the goblet of wine and then when Joffrey drinks that he he dies um and so it immediately looks as though yeah Tyrion's the one who did this but it's a uh, Elena Tyrell so Marjorie Tyrell's grandmother that's right she yeah. she, she poisoned him and wh- it's a really brilliant plan because before this Sansa was given a necklace um, as a gift, and she didn't know but the sansa, the, the necklace had a piece that was poisonous, it had poison inside of it. And so during an altercation, a um, Tyrell took the little piece and put it in the wine before Tyrion got it. And so it was poisoned during that quick moment of, of, of interaction with Joffrey. No one knew it was poisoned right that moment. That's why Joffrey was able to drink the wine before and not get poisoned and then he was poisoned after Tyrion handed him the wine so brilliant plan but then the sansa's again passed around like she she B- peter baelish Littlefinger, gets her out of King- king's landing and he seems to be an ally but like Littlefinger, with everyone else like he's always up to something and he always is manip- manipulating everyone and he eventually marries her off to ramsey and ramsey is one of the best villains in the entire series he's horrific this guy yeah especially what he does to theon and theon is basically a stark himself he's kind of like one of the brothers and but he's really um Greyjoy. That's, he's really a Greyjoy joy from ironside and he pledges loyalty to ned stark and then king rob stark but then he betrays rob and sides with his father and in and the ironborn and invading the north and theon takes winterfell from rob's brother and Bran, but he he eventually betrays his own man, which leads to his capture by House Bolton, and that's where he's ser- tortured in, in servitude to Ramsey and he's got that what's the name? Reek Reek? Yeah, yeah the pet Reek. nickname Reek and the sausage scenes. It's all oh my it's God. so disturbing what happens to him. Well the Boltons are messed up. Like their their sigil is a flayed man, a skin a person who's been skinned alive. And their, their entire family history... That... Oh, so that's those shields upside down, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So it's a flayed man upside down. Yeah. And that, that's what that the Boltons have been doing there for centuries, flaying men alive as punishment. So that's what they're famous for. And that's why they made it their sigil. So that family has a history of just horrific behavior. And that's yeah. why Ramsey is so messed up. Yeah. Theon, though, he does redeem himself eventually by helping Ramsey's wife, Sansa, escape from Winterfell and find refuge with Jon Snow... And the later the then to later take Winterfell back, defeating Ramsey and House Bolton, and then we see Jon Snow beat the crap out of Ramsey. Yeah, but the Battle of the Bastards, it, it could be the best episode in the whole series. It's epic. The it's an incredible battle. It's eighty one minutes long. It's its own it's a movie, you know? It's a huge action sequence. And what I love about that episode is it's just the battle. There's no other characters involved. It's just the Starks and the Boltons, and that's it. And I adore that episode. It's it's hands down one of the best episodes of television ever made. Yeah, I love when uh, John gets to Ramsey and he's just using the shield and Ramsey's shooting the arrows at him. He's like, you can't hit me with these fucking arrows. (laughs) (laughs) But the best shot is like when John, when, uh, because Ramsey encourages, he tells Rickon to run out and try and see if you can get away. And then he shoots him with an arrow. But John was chasing him also. And so by the time Rickon gets hit with an arrow, it's a brilliant plan by Ramsey. John is on his own and his army is way behind him and then Ramsey's army charges towards him and there's that great shot of of John alone and he faces the army and then he's just like unsheaths the yeah, sword so he's, he's like, like let's, let's go, go. there's <laughs> like 2000 horses riding towards him about to kill him great <laughs> great sequence and then but now that Sansa is back her experience has transformed her into a weathered person and she's an adult and she's very mature now and she she seems much more responsible and wise and she's an important figure in john's life now because she's basically his biggest aid and is constantly questioning choices he makes and it's important to question the choices he makes because he think does things like bends the need to danny immediately and um the, the battle for winterfell and So she's always keeping him on his toes. Yeah, she seems to have become politically savvy, specifically spending all that time with Littlefinger. Yeah, 100%. And then she ultimately um, rejects the idea of Winterfell becoming just another pawn to a future king or queen. And she is adamant that Winterfell should belong to the Starks. And she ultimately wins that and becomes the Queen of the North. But we all know that Bran ends up winning the game <laughs> of thrones, which is ridiculous. And who, Bran... who saw that coming? <laughs> so Bran, we all know in the beginning of the sh- seat in the first season gets pushed out of the tower by Jamie after he watches Jamie and his sister getting Get it on. on. And um because of this, Bran isn't able to name his wolf just yet until he wakes from that coma. And then when he when he does, he names his wolf Summer when he wakes up and he's referred to as the Summer Child. And he's a warg, which means he can enter his wolf's body in control. And I believe all the Stark children in the books are wargs too, right? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. And Summer dies by sacrificing himself to save Bran and that group when they're being chased by the Whites. And Summer's death signifies that winter is coming and hey, Summer's over. Oh, yeah. I, see. I see what you did there. It also symbolizes that Bran is no longer a Stark. And this is where he's now only the Three-Eyed Raven. Brand's importance to the story um i believe is understanding the history of westeros because we learn so much through his storyline um who the night king is what the army of the dead is where they came from the children of the forest uh we learn so much about the mythos and the mythological the mythological history of westeros which helps us understand this evil that is penetrating the walls in the north yeah and he's Named after Bran the Builder, the person, the the Stark who built the wall in the North. I don't think anyone was happy when he was named king. <laughs> I don't think so either. I was <laughs> laughing honestly because I watched the, the last episodes with uh with uh like a group of people and everyone and they're diehard yeah. Game of Thrones fans, which uh-huh. I'm sure some of you listening are, and they were like so angry and their anger was just making me laugh. What you know? What my prediction was for for the ending was. I predicted that the only person who would survive would be Arya and Tyrion, and I was like, everyone else is gonna die. So I was kind of close. I mean, uh, John survived and Bran survived, and um, but I thought that what was gonna happen was because after Danny and John got it on at the end of season seven, did you mean to rhyme that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a great rhyme. <laughs> um, I thought that the series would end with Danny having a child between, with John, and then all this stuff would happen all these battles would happen um Uh causing like destruction but ultimately the good guys would win and then their their daughter or son would be the heir to the throne and then Tyrion would be like like the uh the steward of westeros until danny and john's child grew of age to become the ruler of westeros i thought that was like that would be a cool ending and so it would have ended with like with a, a baby in charge? No, no, no. With Tyrion. <laughs> no, I'm with Tyrion in charge, but uh, until the child grew of age. Yeah. It ends with that council, which is like yeah. a fun scene, and yeah, I'm sure everyone hates it though. Like, I thought it was fun. <laughs> I think I like yeah. it though. But yeah. you also weren't super upset about the ending. That wasn't. Up- I wasn't upset about the ending. I liked it. You know, I like they stayed true to the mythos of the Targaryens. You know where what. If there's two Targaryens, one's going to go mad. It's 50-50 shots, so they had to have one of them go mad. Yeah, and we'll talk about this in length in the Targaryen episode, but ultimately we're shown so many clues of what was going to happen, especially when Danny goes into the temple in Season 2 and she sees that vision of King's Landing just burnt in rubble and she's standing inside like a, a burnt church that's yeah. been to- burnt to pieces in Ritz rubble. So we, they showed us what was going to happen. Like, who's the only person yeah. that could do that? Yeah, they showed us the ending of her path. The of person her who journey. controls the dragons. Yeah, so, I mean, I it's not like it didn't come out of nowhere. I Obviously, people were upset. I think that's because they loved Den- Daenerys so much. They didn't want that for her character, I think, is what caused that reaction. But that's just me. The term, winter is coming, we think it refers to the army of the dead. And in, in a, a lot of ways, it does. But ultimately... I think it refers to the destruction of King's Landing that Daenerys um, carries out. Because in the final episode, when Daenerys is speaking to her army, what's King's Landing look like? It's very dark and grim. Um, There's snow and ash everywhere. So Winter has come to King's Landing, but it wasn't the Night King and his army that brought it. It was Daenerys and her destruction that brought Winter to King's Landing. Great point. Yeah, thanks. Want to do some superlatives? Let's do them, man. Okay, who is the MVP of House Stark? Ned Stark. Ned Ned Stark? Ned Stark is the MVP because even though he dies young, he's the one that instills all these great traits in his sons and daughters, specifically with Jon, who you could say is the hero of, of Westeros. And... Without Ned, John would have probably succumbed to those traits of Targaryens. Yeah, you're, that's a great point. And he also raised John as his own. He never told anyone who he was—that he was a Targaryen of blood. So Ned keeping that secret for his John's entire life until Ned's death is also important and integral to John's survival. Great point. I would say the MVP is Jon Snow because of how vital he is to. Um, the survival of everyone else. Yes, yes a cliche answer. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Wow, you're so you're so unique with that picking Ned Stark. Oh my god. Wow. All right, best scene. I mean, best scene in a seven eight season show. Best scene. <laughs> um, I'll tell you my best scene. Yeah, what's your best scene? Battle of the Bastards. Battle of the Bastards. Yeah. I think my I think the best scene for me is Jon Snow's resurrection. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's a great it's scene. It's pretty insane. Great scene. All right, what's the best shot? My, my favorite shot is, I mentioned earlier, is when Jon Snow is facing that army that's stampeding towards him, and he's like, I'm going to mess you up. I'm going to go out guns blazing. I think the best shot for me is when he jumps on the dragon. Nice. Good shot. Best line? <laughs> you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> <laughs> I say... uh, I swore a vow to the Night's Watch, if I don't take my own words seriously, what sort of Lord of Winterfell would I be? Which is a great summary of Jon's character. Now say it like Jon Snow, though. I swore a vow to the Night's Watch. If I don't take my own words seriously, what sort of Lord of Winterfell would I be? (laughs) Not bad. You got a little Scottish in the beginning. I always always got a little Scottish when I do British. (laughs) I ended it well. (laughs) I never wanted it. (laughs) I never asked for it. (laughs) All right. Who's the most likely to get their own TV show? Well, I'm saying Jon Snow because they kind of try to do that with that uh, Pompeii show. That was a movie. Movie, I mean, yeah. Oh, well, no, I mean the characters, not just the actor Kit Harrington. No, no, I'm just saying that they try to make a Jon Snow movie, I guess you could say. I'd say Arya Stark would be be a great show. Yeah. Yeah. Because Jon's kind of, I think Jon's done fighting. By the time the the show's over, I think he's done with fighting. Well, I think Kit is done, Kit Harrington. Oh, yeah. I think he's done. With I them. mean, money's money. <laughs> he's probably not getting that many calls, so who knows? I haven't seen him in anything really. He's huge. been doing a lot of British films. Yeah, yeah, British TV movies. So. It's probably like when when you when you don't see an actor who's in like not in the Avengers movies. Yeah, like, what's he been doing lately? <laughs> <laughs> Nominated for three Emmys. <laughs> well, it's like Javier Bardem. People are like, oh, why doesn't Javier Bardem make mo- more movies? He makes a ton of Spanish movies. Yeah, and he's, he's like not two, American. <laughs> he makes like two a year Spanish <laughs> movies. English is a second language. <laughs> What's your, what do you think is the most underrated aspect of the show? I would probably say the writing because it, it, it goes up and down for me, the writing. Like, that's why, like, I'm not a huge fan of, like, it kind of drags sometimes, and I like to call this, like, the first couple seasons are tits and swords. But it, I think the writing gets a lot better going through that. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the seasons I think that's the greatest strength towards the end Yeah, it did, it did get better <laughs> Remember that South Park where they um, Had Cartman just keeps walking with people and gardens <laughs> Making fun of it, like scheming Yeah <laughs> 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 and they framed it just like the Game of Thrones. Well, scenes. it's really complicated. I know there's people. A lot, there's it, a pe- lot of stuff going on. People are like, oh, they're horrible writers. Like, there's a ton of characters, there's a ton of storylines yeah. and story arcs, and there's a lot of backstabbing and politics. So it's, it's an impressive feat to connect them all in every episode almost. Yeah. I say the most underrated aspect, I think, is just understanding the physical production of it and how big it was and how, how much went into making each season. Like, these were all like. 200 shoot schedules 300 day shoot schedules like they were massive especially the later seasons yeah some of the, like seasons one through two there are some sets and scenes that are like kind of like look yeah they like didn't have the, they TV. didn't have the budget yeah they, they, it's like looks like a soap opera sometimes yeah but I mean the, the cinematography and production design of seasons six through eight are exceptional yeah the, it's an unbelievable production and I, I think it's just it's the biggest thing ever put on TV ever until Lord of the Rings the Amazon show yeah I don't know if that's gonna be good though We'll see. I, I bet it's good. We'll see. I got some uh, fun facts. If you want to do some fun yeah, facts, Tell us your uh, fun facts for House Stark. According to Kit Harington, his performance in the rejected pilot episode they originally filmed was so bad that the creators often threatened to release the scenes on the internet if he complained too much. Daenerys Targaryen actually has purple eyes in the books, but the contact lenses Amelia Clark tried to wear affected her performance negatively, so they abandoned it. The costume designer of Game of Thrones. Uh, used IKEA rugs, like IKEA floor rugs that were fake fur to make many of the wardrobe pieces of the Starks. So if they're wearing like a fur coat or whatever, it's usually an IKEA rug. The swords of the Iron Throne came from the enemies of Westeros' first King Aegon the Conqueror, who's a Targaryen. And there's actually no Stark sword among the ones used to forge the Iron Throne because they simply bowed down and refused to fight. Torren Stark, who was the head of House Stark at the time, bent the knee rather than forfeit his men's lives in a fight they could not win as a, resort, as, as a reward for this he was named Warden of the North. The production of the episode Battle of Bastards was gigantic. It had 600 crew members, 500 extras, 80 horses, 25 stuntmen and women, and four camera and four camera crews involved in shooting the epic battle scene. Massive it was also the most expensive TV show episode ever made. Rumors say the budget for this episode were thirty mi- was $30 million alone. As beloved as this show is, the final episode of Game of Thrones has a horrible user IMDb rating. It has a 4.0 rating on IMDb, the lowest in the entire series. It's really bad. And it's got over 200,000 ratings, so everyone hated it. <laughs> <laughs> That wraps our episode on Game of Thrones, House Stark. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be on House Lannister. And then a little after that, we'll be doing an episode on House Targaryen. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to leave a five-star review. Subscribe on YouTube. Hit that like button if you're watching. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast.